we've been in a series, What I'm Not Doing for Christmas. What I won't be doing for Christmas. We actually started uh, four, four weeks ago, and we, we looked at you know, the idea of Christmas, and one of the things Doug was emphasizing in our lyrics, emphasizing our worship songs, is that we're celebrating the coming of God. Right? The coming of God to be with us. And, and when God comes, salvation comes with him. And the, the idea of behind Advent, from like a theological perspective, is we're supposed to be resetting and re-engaging with what it looks like to be waiting for God to come save. And that just gets lost in uh, the Christmas craziness. And so the, the, the second week, we kind of talked about instead of running around like chickens with our heads cut off, we're going to rest this season. Last week, I don't remember. What did we do last week? There was something. We weren't supposed Oh, I remember. Uh, instead, of, instead of having uh, just work and, and all, instead, like, in wonder. You know, wonder at the coming of God and, and, and the salvation that God brings. This week, uh, we, I mean, it's almost cliched at this point, but uh, first off, did anyone see the Rams game yesterday? What a disaster that was. Uh, I mean, if you don't follow football, now is a good time not to be following football because all they had to do was like stop a three and 16. Twice. Twice they had to do it and twice they failed. It was, un- it was unreal how bad it was. Um, but one of the things I like about watching football is it cues, clues me into what the, uh, the commercials are that are going on. My favorite commercial right now, uh, that, that's out is the, um, it's the one where it's, it's Christmas, right? And then like the husband's like, yeah, dude, I've, I've, I've figured it out and I know what, um, I'm going to do for my wife, my wife. And so Christmas morning, he takes her outside and there's, there's two brand new cars. I think one's like the, I think they're Lexuses or something like that. Uh, something really obscene. And he's, and he's like, here you go, honey. And she runs to the truck. And we're supposed to be like, oh, she's a tough... And he's like, well, I guess I like this SUV or whatever. The, the bottom line being that, that also their house is really amazing. And it's better than yours. And, and like, you, you watch... And they're young, too, and good-looking. So, of course. So it's like, so you're looking at it, and what you're, what you're supposed to take away is, I'm not good enough. Like, if I really loved my significant other, I would purchase two dollars $70,000 cars, put a big bow on it, and let her choose which one she wants. And if you can't do that, you're failing at Christmas. And yeah, I get it. It's supposed to be like, you know, there's supposed to be, we're like, oh, well, Christmas is about like giving gifts to show that we love our family. Or, but there is an, an obvious and unrelent, unrelenting uh, other kind of theme that goes on the way we do Christmas and that it's about stuff. And, mir- and, and material success is the... It's what shows what a good person is. And I mean, yeah, of course we can say, oh, well, no, we know. And, and we saw at the beginning of this uh, series that it's riches aren't what matters. Ultimately, it's relationships. And that's almost cliched at this point. You know, yeah, we get that. But it's, it seems hard to, to kind of rip ourselves away from that. And I think part of the reason is, is that while we understand that Christmas isn't supposed to be about that. We, don't, we have a very anemic, weak view of what Scripture says about why God came and what that does to us relationally. Yes, we're supposed to celebrate with our family and friends and blah, blah, blah. But what is that supposed to mean in light of Jesus coming? And how can that take us out of this materialistic mindset? 
So no, I'm not getting my kids any presents for Christmas. Yeah, they're just going to get coal in their stockings. To make a point. No, I'm just kidding. But I kind of want to. All right, let's read. This is uh, from John. John doesn't have a traditional like story narrative of the, of the nativity. He doesn't tell us about Mary and Joseph and all that. But he, he steps back and he kind of gets the, the theology. Like, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus comes into the world? And this is what he writes in the first chapter of John. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're 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 kind of we're going to bounce around a little bit, so it's kind of to kind of get like a full vision, a full, deep understanding of what John thinks the coming of God in Christ is all about. And so, first, look at this: He gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent or of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And uh, the born of natural descent literally is uh, born from blood. Uh, of human decision is re- literally uh, the will of the flesh. I think that there. I think the translators here are being a little bit. Uh, circumspect. Really, I think this is, um, well, if you've maybe, some of you have been in a situation where you've been with uh, someone that you are strongly attracted to, and you notice that you're together, and suddenly you almost, it almost feels like you lose control, and pretty soon sexual intimacy happens. Okay, that's what's going on right here. Uh, nor of human decision. No, it's, it's the will of the flesh. The body like almost takes over in a way. Um, and, and, and this is how kids come about, right? This is one of the ways that children are born is uh, because of that. And, and the last of the husband's will. This is a good translation. A lot of times in the ancient world, uh, having kids was important because it you know, preserved the family line, right? And so the, 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 the husband is like, I need heirs. Come, let us be together. And then heirs happen, right? That's like one way of, of doing, of doing a ch- childbirth and child raising. But what Jesus comes to do is, is he comes to do something different. He comes to, to, to not have humanity continue, but instead for, for everyone to become a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. And God's not interested in the same things that we're interested in. He's not interested in making sure that everyone's related by blood. Okay? He's not interested in like the physical things that human beings get into. He's not interested in have, producing errors to, in, in, in the traditional sense. He's got something else in mind. Anybody here alive during the 1980s? We have a terribly old congregation. We need more kids born after 1990. That was Richard Nixon, by the way. That was my Nixon impression. Okay. Uh, If you watched TV in the 1980s, can someone tell me a, a, a comedy that you watched, that you remember? One of the best comedies of the 1980s. Anybody? No, don't put the... Stop that! Stop that! It's cheating! Don't cheat. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry? Growing Pains. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, Growing Pains. Doesn't that have... Uh, that was uh, Kirk Cameron. Is that right? Okay, good. Growing Pains. What else? 
comedies. Webster. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, 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 right. Webster, anybody else? Family Ties, the best. Right, Michael J. Fox, what? Did someone say Alf? <laughs> nobody, nobody watched Alf. Silver Spoons? What is that? You guys are all wrong. I looked up the, uh, the, top, the top four uh, comedies from the uh, 1980s, and here they are. There's uh, Roseanne, which is kind of late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the top right there is Full House. Yeah, apparently it came out in 89, so it qualifies. Uh, bottom left, Ties, and then The Cosby Show, right? Those are the, the most popular uh, sitcoms from, I guess I should have said late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then, yeah, and then the ones that you said were probably good too. Uh, what's interesting though, interesting. All right, now let's, let's, let's change our frame of mind. Has anyone watched a comedy since like about 1995 to the present day? A wise choice. Uh, but presumably some people are not totally divorced from the culture like you are, Jack. And uh, presumably some of them <laughs> have watched a comedy at some point. Uh, anybody, your favorite comedy of the last, say, 20 years, 15 the Office, Seinfeld, right? The Big Bang Theory. Oh, that's a good one. Um, what? Liquor store? You're, you're out, whoever said that, you sinner. Parks and Rec, good. Friends, right? Okay, yeah, let's do the top four of the last 30 years. There they are. Seinfeld's, The Office. Oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I threw that in there just for fun. Um, <laughs> I've never seen it, but apparently it's popular. What's that? It's funny. Okay, so Ty approves. And then, then Friends. Now, what is the difference between the late, eight, well, mid to late 80s and early 90s to about 1995 and the present? Does anyone notice the difference in our sitcoms? Right, family versus singles, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing that changes in our culture where up until like the early 90s, uh, it was assumed that the center of human life centered on the family unit, right? Like uh, what mattered was developing families. And one of the interesting things about the 80s and, and the, the 90s was that they were starting to deconstruct sort of the traditional family um, and, and adding in different versions. And so when you say like Webster, right, I think he was ad- adopted or something like that. Um, and some of these, uh, The Simpsons, for example, is a, another popular one where it's lo- or married with children, where they're looking at the family cynically, but still understanding that the family is the center of life. Somewhere around 1995, the elites in our culture who make these things realize something. They realize that's not really where meaning is derived. That life is really about people who are just like you, that you choose to hang out with because it's fun. Interesting. Notice that if you watch Friends or the Office, or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, or Seinfeld, these are all people who are basically like each other. They come from the same socioeconomic class. They feature the same education, generally. They make about the same amount of money. And they get along very well, because they're very similar. It's heartwarming to watch them. And that's a very different notion of what, where meaning is. Meaning is no longer found in the family. It's found in a group of people who are like you, who think like you, and often who you work with. What you're producing during the week, that's what defines you. That's where meaning is generated. Well, when God brought Christ into the world, when, when Christ came into the world, what God was doing was not 
developing a whole bunch of people who are like-minded, who get along really well, same education, same socioeconomic class, same work. He wasn't bringing together a whole bunch of people through loose associations based on common interests. Instead, God was creating a real, genuine family. Because notice, if you think about your own family, especially once you start to get your extended family, you'll notice that your peop- it's very dysfunctional because people are very, very different. People have a very different view of who should be president and how much education they have and how much money they make and where they hail from. As your family expands and gets bigger, it gets more and more dysfunctional because you're less and less alike. And yet, what John says when he, when he steps back and imagines what's God doing in the coming of Christ, well, he's not making a bunch of friends, he's making a family, a real family with people who are genuinely, actually related because we are all born of God. How this works, some people will say, we have the, we share the indwelling of the Spirit. That's one way that this might work. Um, my first book, Book Plug, $35 on Amazon.com, Labor of God. Uh, book Plug, I, I, I say that what John thinks is he thinks that when Jesus is being crucified, that's a birth scene. It's God's labor giving birth to all of us who believe. And so we really are brothers and sisters. That's the first thing in your note sheets. The coming of God and Christ isn't about making friends. It's about generating a brand new family. And this family is not going to operate according to the same system as that family where the dude's like, oh, here's this awesome Lexus. Choose which one you want, honey. And so let's go back to the text. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. You might notice that this is a contra- it sounds like a contradiction. Did you notice this? Like, in the verse before, John said, uh, God's creating new children who are born from God, sons and daughters of God. Well, if that's the case, then how can Jesus be the one and only Son? If God's only got one son, it's Jesus, and how can we be sons and daughters? Well, the problem is uh, it's, a, it's a translational issue. Uh, the Greek behind one and only son is monogenes. So mono means only or one or single. And genes means born from, okay, when they're taken apart, okay? And a lot of people think the best way to tell what a word means is you look at what the, if you have like a compound word, you take the words apart and decide what they mean individually and then put them together and that's the meaning, right? So if only and, you know, son are born from, you put those together, the only son, the only one born from. And if you do that in English, when you get to your driveway, you will hit the accelerator and smash into your house. And when you arrive at Alicia Parkway, you will stop in the middle of the street, turn off your car and get out and walk away. Because we're English language doesn't work like that. It's a terrible way to figure out what a word means if you put like two words that are put together. Identifying and defining them both and then putting them together is a bad way to figure out what words mean. And unfortunately, we have a long tradition in, in uh, translating Greek to, 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 we've done this for so long people have stopped thinking about it. A better way to find out what a word means is to see how it gets used. So, for example, if you want to know what driveway means, you uh, listen to other people who seem to know how to speak English, and if they, when they say driveway, they mean the thing that they park in or that goes to their garage, then you start to intuit that even though the two words don't mean what it sounds like they should mean, you know what the word means. 
monogenes gets used a lot in the ancient world. Not a whole ton in the, in the New Testament, but a lot in the ancient world. And it means something like this. I have a picture of, of a playbill from the 19th century. This is Barnum and Bailey, the greatest show on earth. Wow. The world's largest, grandest, best amusement institution. Boy, I sure do want to see that. Question. Is Barnum and Bailey's circus literally, actually, the largest, grandest, best amusement institution? No, it's not. I remember seeing it once when I was a child. I was traumatized. It's horrible. It's, uh, if they still have it, it should be shut down. In fact, circus people in general should all be fired. It's a disaster. Um, to call it the greatest show on earth is to be dramatically ignorant of what makes a decent show. But what does it mean? It means there's lots of circuses out there, God forbid. But only one is like this. You can go to the circus down the street, run by whomever. But that one doesn't have what we've got. This is a unique, one-of-a-kind, incredible circus. Interestingly, that's what that word monogenes means. Every time it gets used, well, not every time, but most of the time it gets used in the ancient world. It means unique, special, incredible, one-of-a-kind. It means like this is a one-off. Like there's lots, there's lots of circuses out there, but this is the circus. Similarly, what John's saying is there's lots and sons of daughters of God. Because through Christ, we become a family. We're all brothers and sisters. But there's one son who's a one-of-a-kind, unique, incredible son. The son through whom the rest of us become sons and daughters. The son who shows us what being a, a child of God is supposed to be like. This is the one I'm talking about. And so I, I really think a, a better way to translate, for example, John 3.16, uh, whoever believes... Wait, uh, God sent his only begotten. Instead, I would say the same word, monogenes. I'd say uh, his super special, unique, one-of-a-kind son. Let's go back to the text briefly. This unique, special, one-of-a-kind son, he lives on earth. He shows us what a real son of God, a real daughter of God ought to be like. And that's a person who's full of grace and truth. We use that word a lot around here, grace. You ever think about why? Okay. So, every family has black sheep. I have a picture of the black sheep. Every family's got black sheep. In fact, you're, a lot of the black sheep are probably here. Uh, the more I get to know you people, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how they put up with you, but all right, it's great. So, also, from what I understand, every parent has favorites of their children, right? The ones they like the best. And, the one, and then there's the ones that, you know, it's, honestly, it's a little hard to get along with sometimes. But that doesn't mean you don't love them, right? Tori's like laughing. She's like, oh, my parents hate me. Tori, hey, welcome back from college, kid. We've missed you. Um, grace is what happens when 
you really ought not to love or cherish someone, but you do anyway. Right? It's like, it's, it's that, that person in the family, you're like, why are you so irritating? And yet for some reason, I'm still, I still cherish you and love you and, and have affection for you. I'm still committed to you. you. You obviously clearly don't deserve it. And yet I can't help but keep being in love with you. Every family is dysfunctional, right? But the ones that hang together and the ones that keep going are characterized by whole lots and lots and lots of grace. Because there's all these people who are super different from each other and they're smashing into each other and they're irritating each other and making each other angry. And yet, despite that, they stay cherishing each other. They continue showing favor and care, even though it's totally undeserved. And Jesus, if you follow his life, does exactly the same thing. He goes and he meets all these people. And none of them, none of them deserve his kindness, his affection, his commitment, his love, and his care. And he gives it anyway. That's not all he does. He also brings truth. It's no coincidence that our text began with uh, the light that brings light to everyone. For John, light and truth are very similar concepts. When we think of the truth, we tend to think of something like, you know, two plus two equals four, or Donald Trump is the president of the United States. We think of facts, right? Wow. (laughs) Jack, Jack, you do know... Wow. You... Jack, you do know that there is a, a spectrum of people in politics here, right? And, th- and we're all welcome. We're all loved by God, okay? God is neither Republican nor Democrat, okay? I just said that. I stand by it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. Uh, but we tend to think of facts when we think of the truth. And that's part of truth. It is. But John goes deeper with truth. He goes deeper. He thinks not only is it what's factually true, but it's also what's in keeping with who God is and God's nature. All right? It's also what is God like, and is this in conformity with that? Okay? So, for example, we might have a fact, you know, uh, at Constantinople, you know, the empire legalized Christianity. Okay? That's a fact. Okay? Is it Con- No. Nicaea. The Nice Nicaea. Constantine at Nicaea. Jeez, whatever. Okay, history. It's a thing. Um, That's a fact. But whether or not that's the truth, according to John, something more has to be added. It has to be whether or not that was a thing that God approved of. It was in keeping with God's plan and character and nature. That's the truth. That's light. It's the fact plus how it fits into God's plan. And so Jesus goes around and he's a gracious dude, loves everybody, gives and, and, and is kind and, and all of that. But at the same time, Jesus is also a man of truth, meaning that he doesn't just say, I love you and you're awesome. He's also like, but seriously, that's got to stop. I know you love using your power to oppress the poor, but that's not how we're going to do it in this family. I know that, um, you know, sexual stuff is hard for you. I get that. But in this family, we're going to be holy with the way that we do sex. Because that's how God is. Right? 
And what Jesus is doing is he's modeling for us the very the unique, special, one-of-a-kind son of God is saying, this is how our family is going to operate. It's going to operate with grace. Yes, we're going to be affectionate and kind to each other regardless of who we are, but we're also going to operate according to this is how God is and this is what God wants. And if we do that, I mean, think about a good functioning family. You could have a very, uh, a family that stays together because of grace, but is really broken and abusive because no one's bringing truth to the person who's like, you know, that the loud, irritating, bad person in your family, like keeps being bad, bad and irritating. No one stops it. That would be a bad thing. A better way of doing family would be to have someone be like, oh, but wait, that's not super helpful. And, and that's not really according, that's not a good way of, of doing things. Similarly, Jesus' family, our family, this church that Jesus created is a place where, yes, we're affectionate, kind, and loving to each other, but we are also called to say, is this really in keeping with God's nature and character, or is it not? And that's the next thing in your note sheets. Uh, this family functions because of grace and truth. These are the characteristics of our family here at Coast and, and in the Big C Church around the world. It's got to be a place and a people of grace and truth. And, and through that, we're going to be able to deal with each other because we're following the unique, first, best, special Son of God. Jumping back to the text. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What John's doing here, he's not just describing what's happening, right? He's also, he's also saying this is kind of who God is. When God acts, this is what happens. God is true light, and what God does, God brings light, brings truth to the world. And what's he doing when he's doing this? He's, he's trying to make children of God. Anyone who receives him, who believes, becomes a child of God. Going on in the text. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. When somebody, when when the son comes from the father, the father is always sending the son. What happens? Light and truth and grace and new family happens. I rip on those corporations a lot. I have some of my favorites here. Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon. Ironically, in order for this sermon to happen, I had to use Google. I was working with Microsoft Word. Uh, My wife texted me on her Apple after learning something that she saw on Facebook right before we received something in the mail from Amazon. They're like money vacuums. I don't know if you know this, um, it, the idea of a global capitalist corporation is actually pretty new in the uh, grand scheme of economic history. Um, it's not really the way things operated really until like the 19th century was the, kind of the beginning of this. Um, and, and we're still in a kind of a, a negotiation for how to work with the idea of these, well, just the very notion, like think about, like you tell your kids, you're like, go to college and then get a job, right? That's what kind of, that's like the standard Justin, for example, his family's like, get a job, move out of the house, get some responsibility. We still love you, but less and less as the days go by. <laughs> I'm just playing, man. I hope you stay with him until you're 35. That's what I did. <laughs> 
But isn't it weird that like, like, oh, it doesn't matter who you work for or where they are. We just say like, oh yeah, you go get a job and like you just send your resumes out all across the world and someplace in Beijing is like, come work for us. You're like, okay, you go, you work for them. It's this faceless corporation. You don't know anything about it. But, but you're getting a paycheck. That's a very strange way of doing human life. Historically speaking. John, what kind of symbols do you use? Wait, is it this one? Because I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Next, next slide. Soltan? Soltone. Okay. This is Zildjian? Zildjian? All right, Zildjian. Uh, next to Zildjian is uh, Craigie and Debbie. Zildjian? Uh, Zildjian, they make symbols. And apparently they are the, uh, the oldest family-run company in the world. In uh, 1623, Adidas Zildjian in Constantinople uh, started a symbol company called Zildjian. And then in 1928, his whatever grandson moved to uh, Massachusetts, where the company is now. Uh, Craigie and Debbie are the, are the 14th generation of Zildjians. Who run this company? That's exceedingly rare. I uh, looked at a statistic. Apparently, um, only twenty percent of businesses in the United States are truly family-owned. Only twenty percent. Uh, I should say of small businesses. But that's like the vast majority. But basically about 19.3% of businesses are truly family-owned. The idea of a family business is on its way out in, uh, in, in history, right? And yet, ironically, strangely, up until uh, 200 years ago, pretty much everyone got their business from their parents. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you realize that the, the sort of the biblical vision of what life is kind of supposed to be like is you have a family plot of land, and that gets passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so when, when, when God sends the unique, special, one-of-a-kind son, and, and, and that son is involved in whatever that son is involved in, when we become the children of God, we get involved in the same thing because the Bible thinks of us as being a part of God's family business. Just, just as we're God's sons and daughters, so also are we engaged in what God's engaged in. And what's God's business? What has he been doing? Saving. From the very beginning with Israel, all the way through, every time God interacts with humanity, he's saving us. In the Son, in the unique, full expression of who God is, that salvation is a once-for-all eternal giving of life, but it doesn't stop there. It's not over. Instead, there's salvation from sin that, that rules our lives. Instead, there continues to be salvation from, from being rescued out of the ways that the world does things and being brought into the way that the family does things. There's the salvation of, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it this month. And there's the salvation of, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive this disease. And there's the salvation of, I don't know if my family's going to make it through this hard time. All of those are aspects of God's salvation. And what God calls us to do as God's sons and daughters is to follow the unique son in the family business. That's the next thing in your note sheets. Our family business is salvation. 
Don't get it twisted. Uh, You can't save someone's soul. But you can play a part. And part of what we're called to do is to see that full and complete salvation. Not just souls and eternal life, heaven and hell, but, but also God's divine life. Seeing that bring transformation into our lives and the lives of those around us. The last thing is my favorite part of this text. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling. The Greek there is a skenao, and it's mostly used to, to mean a pitch a tent. Pitch a tent. But when we hear pitch a tent, we think of uh, the men's retreat. We think of going and suffering for days on end, waiting for it all to end as we're cold. Apparently, I kept Scott up like the first night because I was snoring so bad. He was like poking me. He's like, this is miserable. And that and that's because we are we don't we don't think of tents as like a permanent residency. We don't think tents are just something we do because we want to get back to nature or whatever. The skenao is is more like um in the the, the aftermath of the civil war. Um when there was a massive migration west in this country. Um, people dispossessed by the conflict, uh, freed slaves, um, people who just wanted a new start, would go west with very, very little. And they would go and they would come to a place that was empty. And they would see a growth there and they would see possibility there. And then what they would do is they would pitch a tent and say, this, this is our land now. And the tent, of course, itself was temporary, because, but, but there, there needed to be shelter while they built the home, while they began to meet the neighbors. They needed a little place, but, but what the, sig- the significance, the symbolism of pitching the tent was very similar to when we say we plant a flag. Say, this is home now. This is where we belong. This is us. God in Christ becomes flesh and, and pitches his tent, plants his flag, where? With humanity. God says, maybe you don't get it. Maybe you don't know what I'm about. Well, let me show you what I'm about. I am about being with you, come what may, no matter what. From now on, my fortunes are tied to your fortunes. Wherever you go, I go. I'm with you forever. You are my people. The God of the universe in the incarnation of Christ says, once and for all, I'm pitching my tent with you. And when you rise, I rise. When you fall, I fall. But no matter what, I'm not quitting on you. This is not an insignificant point. If you remember the stories that, we t- that, that, are, that are told in Scripture about the end of Jesus' ministry, he ascends to heaven, right? Still human. 
God has taken on flesh, taken on humanity for eternity. God's not quitting with being human. And then, of course, you say, well, but he left. He did leave. See, he left. But wait, John goes out of his way in the gospel to highlight Jesus' teaching about the fact that when Jesus leaves, his spirit, my spirit, the advocate, the, the, the paraclete, the friend, the guide, that I'm going to be with you in my spirit. Just because I'm not here physically, I'm still with you. Yeah, that's one of the things about families, you know, in, in, the, human, in the human world, families... Families fall apart. There's a lot of people here who've uh, lost a spouse. There's been a divorce. A, uh, someone you love has left. A dad or a, or a mom or some kids, they've walked out and then they've never come back. John says this family is different. Jesus pitched his tent with us. He planted his flag in our hearts. And he will never, ever, ever leave us. No matter how much we deserve it. No matter how much we might even want it. He's with us and for us. For eternity. This last thing in your note sheets, the leader of this family will never leave us. It's easy to get caught up in the Christmas season with the notion that uh, you know, family is like what you see on the Hallmark Channel. The high-powered real estate agent from New York goes back to her childhood home where she meets the, uh, her high school sweetheart who works, on, who works with kids and also recently lost his wife and has a daughter who needs a mom. And literally Santa Claus lives there too. It's a great movie. They've made it like a thousand times. (laughs) But no, seriously though, I mean that's what happens, right? We're like, we're like, oh, oh yeah, we know it's not about stuff. It's really about you know getting together as a family. But that's our vision of what family is. It's saccharine. It's it's cheap. It's all based on emotions, it's based on feelings, it's based on, you know, everyone having the circumstances of their lives work out just right, and everyone lives happily ever after. That's our notion, that's what we're told Christmas is about. John says, no, what Christmas is about is God's family. It's a family that's dysfunctional, and yet, through grace and truth, continues to work. It's a family that's, that we've got a job, a business that we've inherited, the business of salvation, of seeing souls saved and lives transformed, the good news spread. And it's a family where we can trust that, 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 yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the hardest things that ever happened to me was when uh, this church split in the late 90s. Because to me, it felt like my family was getting divorced. 
And that happens in churches. That happens in regular families. That happens in the world. But the promise that John says is, but, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't go anywhere. So this Christmas, let's not run around like chickens with our heads cut off. Instead, let's rest as God intended us to rest. Let's not be consumed by worry and anxiety. Instead, let's be consumed by wonder. And let's not think that our lives are bound up with our fortunes and riches and regular relationships, but instead let's recognize that our meaning and our lives are bound up in this family that we've been drawn into by the living God in Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the coming of your Son. We thank you that he invites us into a brand new family. A family run on grace and truth. A family bent on seeing the whole world saved. And a family with a father who will never leave. We pray that that will be our heart and our vision as we welcome your son again on Christmas. In his name we pray, amen.